0: Tansitro, Mexico, claims to be the avocado capital of the world. They claim to sell $1 million worth of the fruit per day. But what makes Tancitro truly interesting is that the orchards and the town itself is under the protection of a militia funded by the avocado growers. In a fascinating piece in the New York Times, journalists Amanda Taub, Max Fisher, and Dalia Martinez use the towns of Tancitro, Neva, and Monterey to demonstrate a trend in Mexico that cities are effectively ceding from the state. As they write in their piece, quote, These are acts of desperation revealing the degree to which Mexico's police and politicians are seen as part of the threat. In this conversation, Amanda Taub describes what her reporting from Mexico reveals about state fragility and the enduring presence of what can best be described as warlordism. We discuss these three case studies in detail, and each are totally fascinating on their own, but what distinguishes this piece in the New York Times, is the way in which it draws on social science literature to help explain this ongoing trend, which is present not only in Mexico, but in other parts of the world as well. And this kind of contextualized combination of original reporting backed by academic research is what you can expect regularly from the most excellent interpreter column in the New York Times. And frankly, I suspect most of you listening out there are very familiar with The Interpreter. It's written by Amanda Taub and Max Fisher, and I'll post a link to their newsletter on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Uh, and before we begin, I, I just want to note that Amanda was a recent speaker at a Humanity in Action event where she told some behind-the-scenes stories of her reporting and explained her reporting process. So this is a great conversation, and I must admit, minutes after finishing this article in the New York Times, I emailed Amanda asking for the interview because i knew it was something that you would be totally interested in in learning about this is great fodder for for global dispatches podcast listeners all right now here is my conversation with amanda taub of the new york times looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health tune into global health matters the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary lanyon from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: So this story was actually part of a series that Max Fisher and I did on Mexico um, that we worked on for a really long time. Um, We went to Mexico to do some reporting in August, but that was after probably, I would say, four to six weeks of pre-reporting, which the way we work involves a lot of talking to academics and kind of looking for studies, looking for as much original data as we can find. And so one thing that we had been kind of aware of for a while and wanted to write about was this phenomenon of kind of auto-defensa movements in Mexico, um, which a few years ago were kind of a big trend, especially in Michoacan, which is a state that has been kind of really ground zero for the drug war there in a lot of ways. and these are essentially started, like
0: like cities that just kind of form their own you know town defense forces,
1: yeah, so the auto defenses um which just means self defense group in spanish basically um are groups of you know they're somewhere between a private militia and a like neighborhood watch, so some of them are really small, some of them are for whole towns or even multiple towns, um and they are basically um you know citizens who get together um, and were kind of working together to get rid of cartels, which, you know, depending on how you want to look at the story and how you want to tell the story is either a very inspiring tale of kind of people doing the right thing and protecting their homes and families, even though the cost was very high for many of them, or it's a really disturbing tale of a kind of outbreak of vigilante violence happening in a space of kind of total breakdown of state security.
0: And, and this and, is a phenomenon that had been bubbling for, for a while, to the extent yeah. that there had been some academic studies taking a look at at their origins. and, and...
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing about this was that It actually, for the most part, was kind of a flash in the pan. So a lot of places started these auto defensive groups, but you know, what turned out to happen in most places was that They broke down. So a lot of times they were actually co-opted by cartels, um, which found it pretty easy, I think, to go to towns that had a problem with one group and say a sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing and work together. But then at that point they had been kind of infiltrated and corrupted, um, and became effectively part of organized crime. The state also made a big effort to try to regularize them in some ways, but, um, that there's actually very little data about that. They were kind of secretive. Um, but um, those efforts mostly also broke down. Um, but we found that in a few places, um, including this town called Tansichero, um, the auto defenses had managed to last um and they had also tried to kind of go one step beyond mere security and try to have actual kind of political independence as well
0: and and Tancitro provided one of of your really fascinating case studies in in right. your article can you describe the town uh, where it is what it's known for who lives
1: sure. there so Tancidoro is a you know pretty small town um, in the state of Michoacan, um, and the thing it is best known for is avocados. Um, you know, the the statistics sometimes sound kind of hyperbolic, so I was never quite sure if they were trustworthy. But you know, they claim to produce a vast you know, a a huge percentage of the world's avocados, they claim, come from there. And, you know, there are avocado orchards all around the town and some really big exporters um, that export to the United States. Um, And so, you know, one thing that's pretty interesting about that is that in a lot of ways, their, you know, legal and longstanding avocado trade kind of mirrored the drug trade um, in some ways, in that it was this kind of semi-agricultural commodity um, that needed to be processed and its market was primarily north of the border. Um, And so what happened- And very
0: expensive.
1: And very expensive. um, And, you know, I can't really comment on how wonderful drugs are, but certainly avocados are very delicious. There's a lot of demand for them. So, you know, there's the supply that exists to fulfill demand north of the border. Um, and so what happened a few years ago, um, as happened elsewhere in Michoacan, but it kind of hit really severely because it had had this really strong local agricultural industry. The cartel started to extract taxes from all of the growers. Um, So it not only seemed to be using the town as a base for its criminal operations, but it was also kind of acting as, you know, the same way warlords do really all over the world. They were extracting money through extortion from the people of the town and particularly the avocado growers.
0: Yeah. Like you have this natural resource that can be exploited and you have the warlords who, you know, tax the townspeople and the farmers, you know, for their protection rackets, basically.
1: Exactly. So this was something that Max Fisher and I had been thinking about for a long time, how to sort of do more coverage of that phenomenon um, for the interpreter. And we wanted to look not just at the behavior of warlords around the world. Um, but how they kind of became part of governance, um, you know, the ways that they would either kind of undermine the state or became part of the state. Um, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, know that there's a pretty longstanding political science literature about how kind of organized criminal groups can, um, over time become part of the infrastructure of kind of, you know, state control and governance. Um, And one thing that we thought was especially interesting about this story was Mexico is, of course, a pretty developed country.
0: Not a failed state.
1: Not a failed state. um, And not a poor country either. Um, But they have a real problem with security, and it is particularly bad in places like Michoacan. And their crime rates, the violence rates, are rising a lot right now. Um, you know, the statistics are, the year just ended, so the statistics are not completely firmed up yet, but all indications are that this might be the most violent year in Mexico's history. Um, okay. And so, it, you know, it has in some ways this big problem of kind of lack of state capacity. So what we realized when we kind of heard about the auto defensive movement and towns like Tonsidero Was that this was a pretty interesting chance to look at how kind of municipal level actors, whether they're, you know, an auto defensa or a town government or something like that, um, can try to solve the security problem by separating themselves from the failed state institutions and kind of see what they can do to rebuild from the ground up.
0: And and so what did you find uh, when you when you visited there?
1: So um, we went to three places. Um, and I should say that Tonsidero, the reporting there on the ground was done by our colleague Dalia Martinez, who is a journalist in Mexico, um, who has done great investigative work there. Um, and she agreed to work with us on the Tom Cidero story because it was a town that she knew well. Um, so she did the on the ground reporting there. We did the kind of we did a bunch of kind of interviews with experts and people who had studied the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also did the um, on-the-ground reporting from Mexico City, Neza, and Monterey, which I'll come to in a few minutes. Um, and so when Dalia and our photographer got to Tan Sidero, they said, you know, you drive through what people call Tierra Caliente, the hotlands of Michoacan, which technically Tierra Caliente is one particular part of Michoacan, but it's become this kind of catch-all phrase for the dangerous part of the state. Um, And they said, you know, you get to the border of Tansidro, you get to the first checkpoints, and you just see everyone start to relax. Um, That, you know, you get the sense that security is kind of there in the way that it's a public good in places where you just don't need to worry about kind of random ambient violence um and that you don't even kind of realize necessarily how stressful it feels to be traveling through the state until you get to a place where people are relaxing um and that it really feels like an oasis in some ways
0: so so that would suggest that the sort of cartel militia is 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 working
1: well so this is the interesting thing so on the one hand They created this militia in Tan Sitaro. It's backed by the avocado growers, which seems to be one of the reasons why it's had a lot more longevity than other auto defenses. Um, Basically, they have really deep pockets um, and they have a lot of kind of political and social sway in the town. You probably
0: can't use like the pretext of the war on drugs to crack down on avocado brothers either.
1: No. Um, And I think they also, you know, they have a pretty good, these are these are powerful people, um, and they are they're not like outlaws. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're part of society. They have relationships with people, um, and so they have had, I think, in a lot of ways, a lot more success than other towns at creating an auto defensive movement that is has some longevity and has some stability. But there are definitely downsides. I mean, one of the things that you look for when you're trying to build a state, um, and trying to, you know, have institutions is an ability to have a system that works by rules, and an ability for people to kind of get the benefit and the burdens of those rules, whether or not they can kind of personally bring the most violence to bear or personally bring the most resources to bear. And that's not something that exists in Tonsidero. You know, they have security there. But Their attempts to kind of replace institutions like, you know, courts and things like that that would actually provide due process have been quite limited. Um, You know, they have had some community justice efforts, but it also seems that members of the auto defenses, if they decide somebody's a problem, can just beat them up and kick them out of town. Um, And it's not like there's an appeals process for that.
0: Because like the entirety of the political power in the town is these avocado growers who... Um, you know, on the one hand, are providing a degree of of safety for the people in their community, but that probably comes at a price, and which is like a, sort of a lack of, like a a liberal society, one might say, in, in in a place like that, where you can, um, you know, voice your discontent or um, commit a crime and not expect to be beaten up for it. That right. sort of thing.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, we one of the um auto defense uh, kind of militia members that. Uh, our colleague Dalia interviewed, just said flat out, you know, there were some guys we thought they were dealing drugs. And, you know, he used some very colorful language to say we went to their houses and dragged them into the street and beat them up and then told them to leave town and never come back. Um, and, you know, depending on your perspective, you could say, these are tough guys cleaning up the streets, sort of, you know, Clint Eastwood movie style. But, The fact is we have due process for a reason. You know, we have rights and protections and processes and institutions because it's so easy for that kind of power to be abused. And, you know, the less powerful you are, the further you are from being a wealthy avocado grower, for instance, the more likely it is that you're going to find yourself on the receiving end of that kind of abuse and have nothing you can do about it.
0: And so, how is the state of of Mexico, the you know the the, the federal government of Mexico approaching, uh, you know this this town?
1: Um, I would say, with it seems some kind of grudging acceptance, um, they seem pretty aware that the town is. A is something of a success story, and B really uninterested in being subsumed into the kind of regular security state. So, you know, people told us that, um, you know, basically they had a bunch of unregistered illegal weapons, and the state knew about it, but just looked the other way because they knew they could like trust them to do the right thing. Um, they have had some efforts to kind of regularize some of the militias in what they call. Um, the rural forces where the government sort of says, you know, we will make you quasi-state kind of paramilitary forces in exchange for having a little bit of, and, you know, give you some funding and weapons in exchange for having a little bit of control over you. In theory, that happened with one of the auto defensa groups in Tan Sidero. But when we talked to people, they said, actually, it's still the avocado growers who are funding all of our stuff.
0: Um, Well, I mean, it's interesting. Like, on the one hand, it would seem that um, there's essentially like a trade-off happening between like the short-term security and stability of the people in this town who um, you know, unlike, you know, on the other side of of, of the border, of the town can live in, in greater safety, but at the mm-hmm. expense of, you know, the kind of long-term development and security sector reform that's required for, you know, Mexico to become a, a more stable and more secure place.
1: so I think that's right. And that was really one of the things that we wanted to look into when we went to Mexico was to see what would happen kind of after those trade-offs were made. So we looked at three different places that had all tried in various ways to kind of separate from the national system for, of security and politics that has kind of allowed this problem to get so out of hand. And what we found in every case was that you can make progress, but there are limits on that progress. And sometimes it comes at a cost. Um, so, you know, in Tonsidero, that cost is essentially giving up the kind of, you know, at, even on paper institutions and rights and freedoms that come from living in a country that, with the rule of law. And in the short term, you can say, well, they didn't have the rule of law anyway, which is accurate. But it's not at all clear. And people in the town were quite worried. Some of the ones who spoke to our colleague for the article about how you kind of get from here to there. You know, what happens after you get people to used to the idea that power just comes from a gun and whoever has the most kind of ability to wield violence should have the most authority. How you get from there to something that looks more like the rule of law is, I think... A difficult question i mean it's something that political scientists have been studying for a long time and um, i think most of them would say that you're probably looking at a process that takes decades rather than months or years
0: so can can you uh describe now the the suburb of neza which is a, a suburb of mexico city which is also uh, a case study in your reporting um What's happening there that's sort of distinguishing and what made you want to take a look at at what's happening with the securities uh, of, of that suburb?
1: So Neza is a really interesting case. It is um, a place that hasn't gotten a ton of play, especially in the Western media, um, I think largely because it's a pretty poor suburb of Mexico City. It's a place that kind of started out as a, you know, a slum for migrant workers who kind of swatted on land and built houses there and has now turned into a permanent kind of urban agglomeration home to almost a million people. Um, And it's, it's not the kind of place that makes headlines in general. But when we were talking to security researchers and we said, you know, we really want to know kind of what are the outliers? What are the places that are doing better than you would expect? We started hearing about Neza and started hearing that it was, you know, compared to its sort of cohort compared to other um, areas around Mexico city that were similarly poor. um, It had seemed to make real improvements in the crime rate, real improvements in violence. People seemed to have a lot more faith in the police. And so we looked into it a little bit further, and we found that a couple of things were going on that could kind of explain that. Um, One was that, you know, the first thing everyone pointed to is they have this police chief who is an incredibly charismatic figure. Um, His name is Amador, um, and he is kind of— I think you
0: describe him as like a sociology professor who looks like he's late for class.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's, uh, he's got all of these kind of quirky ideas about what it takes to make somebody a kind of a good cop. And a lot of them sound a little bit kind of, uh, I guess you could say, eccentric. Um, He, for instance, not only does he think his police officers need to read kind of great works of literature, but he um, had had Don Quixote translated into kind of police radio code um, Mm -hmm. so that his cops could like really kind of hear it in their own language. And he does things like he has essay contests to encourage officers to become writers and get them to write short stories and things like that, that are just, you know, not direct Directly related to police work. But what he said when we spoke to him was that he was trying to create a positive identity around being a police officer to make it a kind of aspirational community to be part of and make people feel like it was more than just a job. And more importantly, more than just a way to extract bribes and other kinds of cash from the community. Because before he came along, um, people talked about this sort of euphemistically as the police being run like a business. So they were essentially set up to extract money from the kind of townspeople below them and, you know, organized crime groups that wanted to work there, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a version of this story, which is just about this, like one guy who has crazy ideas and they just turned out to work. But um, neither Max nor I really re- believes that that's how things change in the world, even though it's, it's a factor. Um, so we started digging around to see what else was going on that was unusual about Neza. And it turns out that it was one of the first cities that became a stronghold at the local government level of the PRD, which is a third party in Mexico um, on the left. And it has not traditionally had a great deal of luck um, getting you know, control of local governments. And because of that, the PRD has never really been a part of the kind of national political machine in the way that the main political party that ran Mexico for many, many years, the PRI, um, and its kind of main opposition have. You know, they have more in the way of national patronage networks. They have more in the way of kind of a system of people already owing each other favors and already having a way for things to get done. Whereas when the PRD first came to power in Neza, they just needed to show a win. They just needed to show that they could really govern and that they could really do something differently.
0: So they weren't like burdened, say by putting some hack as police chief, right?
1: Right. And you know, they weren't burdened by owing somebody a favor that, you know, had helped them with a campaign two States over 10 years back and was finally getting his due to Mm -hmm. become Neza police chief or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so, you know, it was there are a lot of ways in which having a very shallow network and not having much um, history of governing is like not an advantage. <laughs> but in this particular case, it did carry some advantages. And one of those was that they were able to tap this guy, Amador, um, as police chief um, and convince him to come and take the job, uh, even though it was, you know, by all sort of rational measures, I think going to be a pretty thankless task and we're able to give him some freedom to work. Um, so he had one term with the PRD when they first came to power, um, in Neza, it went very well. The PRD got voted out. Um, things went badly again. Then they came back and he has now had, I think two consecutive terms as police chief. Um, and it seems to be making a difference um, in a lot of ways. You know, they have been able to reduce things like extortion of local businesses and increase their engagement with the community. Um, they've reduced car theft, which is a really common crime and something that, you know, is it just really Bothers people, you know, which is understandable. You don't want your car to get stolen, but I it's think also people a vehicle really
0: organized crime as well.
1: It is, and I think it's something that people see as just this incredibly visible sign that things are not,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: not safe and not working. That it's it's maybe not as violent as some crimes, but um, so it's it's bad.
0: Can, can I ask you maybe to like to, to take a step back and and sure offer me some thoughts about what your reporting tells you about sort of the the future of security in, in Mexico? Are, are there any sort of bigger lessons that you can draw?
1: So I think that there are a couple of bigger lessons that I can draw. Uh, but before I do, I just want to say that, you know, I, just to finish up the story of Neza, I don't want to paint it as a utopia, because there are still some drawbacks. You know, this is a, in a lot of ways, a fragile system. One local election could dismantle the whole thing, as has happened before. Um, There are also a lot of limitations on it. So, you know, we heard from several researchers before we went to NEZA that one of the big problems they'd had was that um, police officers from other jurisdictions or from higher levels of the Mexican government were actually involved with car theft and organized crime, um, and that they couldn't you know, the NESA cops just couldn't do anything about that, that it was basically a hard stop on the level of change they could make. And, you know, that was not something that we were able to verify in our reporting, but we heard a lot of stories of that nature. And I think it definitely shows up in the crime statistics um, that, you know, the area overall remains violent. Crime, Neza is still, you know, still has a crime problem. Um, there is you know, when we were there doing our reporting, um, the night before when our photographers were there taking some photos, and I guess it would have been the wee hours of the morning, not the night. It was a huge public brawl that broke out that the police really struggled to, um, contend with when we were visiting their command center. There was this big car chase and the car left the jurisdiction and there was just nothing they could do about it. So, there are There are real limitations on this, and you know it was a signal to us of, on the one hand, you can make a lot of progress at the local level, but on the other, in Mexico, because the security problems go to the very top of the government, there's no way to solve the problem at the ground level and have it be any kind of a durable or you know expandable solution.
0: So is, is like the implication, therefore, that probably the, the sort of the, the more likely way forward is that these kind of individual local initiatives um, continue to, to flourish and, you know, at the expense of a stronger, more centralized Mexican state?
1: Truthfully, I think probably not. Truthfully, I think that all of these local initiatives will flourish for a while and then fall apart. Um, because they are all dependent on pretty specific kind of environmental factors um and it seems like you know one election goes the wrong way and or you know there's a bad avocado harvest or something like that that has you know not necessarily anything to do with what the people in the town itself have done um, or you know the skills of the people running these security operations but they require kind of certain conditions to be able to flourish, and I don't think we can count on those lasting. And so the third, it,
0: mm-hmm. oh, go ahead, yeah.
1: I was going to say the third place that we went to was Monterey, which used to be a few years ago was basically Mexico's biggest success story. So it had been extremely violent during the height of the drug war, um, and the but Monterey is a pretty rich city. Um, and it's home to um, a, a technical school that is called the the MIT of Mexico. It has a lot of resources, and some of the kind of richest businessmen in town got together and said, You know what? this is our city. We're not leaving this violence is unacceptable and they worked with the state to Fund and hire an entirely new, essentially, and an essentially an entirely new state police force,
0: like fire everyone, get in fresh blood, sort of thing.
1: So they, yes, yeah, so they literally sent people from their corporate h r departments to run the hiring process and to winnow out people who were already on the force who they thought were you know uh, unfit or corrupt or something like that. um so they fired a huge number of people, they hired a huge number of people, they did this national search for the best police officers from around the country, um and the corporate sector also just basically paid a ton of money to make this happen so they they supported the hiring process they supported salaries they helped create you know new barracks for them to live in so that they wouldn't need to be worried about getting threatened in their homes they created um you know funds to make sure that they were equipped and all of that and they got real results not only did crime fall but in um studies of people's trust in the police and people's feelings of security you know the kind of citizen level feelings of security things got much better Um, and it showed up in the data but then a couple of years ago the state government changed and they've started to dismantle everything Um, and all of the measures are starting to get worse crimes going back up Um, faith in the police is going down and the really sad thing is that you know the, the people who were wealthy and had a lot of resources um, and started this, it seems like they're maybe getting a little bit fatigued. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they put all this together, but the idea was that they would kind of build up state institutions to the point that this would be self-sustaining. Um,
0: but but to now, your point earlier about like, you know, how the politics are so impactful of it, it seems that, as you said, just like one, one sort of election later and it could all actually be dismantled.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it just shows how... Difficult it is not just to create something like this You know what we've seen in these towns is they are able to create it, but the really difficult thing is Sustaining it to the point that it will be kind of a self-sustaining institution Well, well and, can, I,
0: can I ask you then like, uh, What's the if, if, if what you're doing is all just sort of telling sort of three distinct interesting stories that probably you know, won't last. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's the point? Like what's, what's sort of like the larger um, ideas that you're, that you're intending to get across by, by shining a spotlight on these three places?
1: So what we were looking at here really was um, what happens when you secede from failing institutions? Um, So is it possible to kind of rebuild and recreate a totally separate parallel system that can solve the problem um, and do it yourself, whether it's because you have rich businessmen who will pay for it or because you have a fancy vigilante group who will protect you, um, whether that can be a durable solution that will kind of go around the problem of an unstable and kind of failing national political and security system. And it, you know, it didn't seem like that was the case. So I would say the takeaway is you can't expect individual heroes to solve things. Like individual people doing the right thing can make a big difference. And they did in all of these cities. But in none of them is it
0: enough. And and you're reporting, you know, it seems to have implications beyond Mexico and other places where, you know, warlordism uh, is, you know, is, is rampant. Mm hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, one of the places that one of the reasons why we thought Mexico was so interesting is precisely because, you know, people expect to hear that there are warlords in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for instance. They don't really think of that as something that's happening in Mexico, necessarily. Um, You know, they think of cartels as separate. Um, But we really, you know, took a different perspective and said, look, you know, all of these groups are doing basically the same thing. They're extracting money from the populations and territories under their control. And they might be using it to export commodities like drugs or avocados, or they might be using it to just, you know, extort the people who live there. Um, I think that's, you know, there's some interesting work that's been done on warlords around the world, obviously. And one of the things that comes up time and again is, They're pretty flexible. You know, whatever is making money, whatever is a source of resources in their territory, they will take some of
0: it. Well, uh, Amanda, thank you so much. This was fascinating. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Amanda. That was great. Much appreciated. And one last thing before I let you go, if you have not already done so, please be so kind as to leave a review on iTunes or give the podcast a five-star, or at least a four-star recommendation. Uh, I so appreciate your support. The more recommendations, the more reviews the podcast gets, the higher ranks in search rankings for people who are looking for podcasts about foreign policy and world affairs, so your small act of, of leaving a review uh, has a big dividends and is a selfless act that allows other people to more easily find this show, so thank you uh, for doing that. Right, we'll see you next time. Bye.
1: The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.